In the early 20th century, liberalism made a fast advance through Christian churches in Europe and in North America, undermining the authority of Scripture and subverting the gospel. And in the 1950s and in the 1960s, some evangelicals, that is, those who held to the authority of the Bible, those who believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, were attempting a new attitude towards these liberals. They wanted to be part of the conversation and have influence on some of these men. So they took a more cooperative uh, posture and a softer tone towards them. Whereas men like J. Gresham Machen in 1923 wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism, very clearly making the case that these are two different religions, two different things. Um, these men, some of these evangelicals in the 50s, 60s, were trying to soften that approach and, and, and come to the table with them. One of these men was a guy by the name of Billy Graham. He invited liberals and Roman Catholics to be on the stage at his rallies in the hopes of influencing these men and gaining a wider voice. One contemporary of Graham said this, quote, those who know Billy best say that it is his amiable personality that makes him believe that he can become a sort of pontiff or bridge builder between Bible-believing Christians and those attractive personalities who are the proponents of a non-redemptive gospel. At a recent breakfast, he pleaded with us to recognize that many of the liberals were good men, loved the Lord, and perhaps could be won over to the conservative position. The desire for men like Graham and others was not to compromise their own doctrine. That was not their aim, that was not their desire, but to win these men over through an external cooperation and through influencing these men. That was the desire. It was a common sentiment then, in the 50s and 60s, and it remains common now amongst those who would call themselves evangelicals. Many want peace with those who hold opposite views on fundamental doctrines. However, we must ask, is this approach biblical? Is it based on a correct understanding of Christian unity? And you will not be surprised to, that I would submit to you it is not. Rather, as we'll see again this week or more of this week, the Bible tells us that there are times when division, times when a, a break in union with others is absolutely necessary and that it actually produces a good result. It's a good thing in one sense. So as we, can, as we continue this, this series and actually bring to a close our brief series on, on Christian unity, just a quick reminder overview of where we've been. So, as we began, we looked at how Christian unity begins with God's actions in saving people for himself. It doesn't begin with what we do. It doesn't begin with our organization. It begins with God. He's the one who calls us and saves us, and unites us to Christ, gives us new hearts. 
That's where it all begins. We become part of the body of Christ in that way. True believers do. We saw last week that the Lord uh, upholds this unity. He preserves this unity in us by giving gifts to his people. That we exercise uh, in the community of the church, uh, helping one another. And, and what the goal of this is, as we saw last week, is we're pushing one another towards greater maturity. And this is how we maintain the unity of the faith. We, we push each other towards maturity in our doctrine, maturity in our actions, in our minds, in, in, our, in Christ's likeness. So unity is something that all Christians have by virtue of our being united to Christ and therefore with each other. Uh, but the outward experience of our unity is something that we seek to build and grow, which will ultimately be fulfilled uh, when Christ returns. So it's part of the, you know, the now and the not yet. We, we are united, and yet we're striving to maintain that, and even, as Paul said last week, attain the unity of the faith through uh, the, the Word, and through exercising our gifts, and, and ultimately that unity will be perfected, just in the similar way that our sanctification is perfected, uh, when the Lord Jesus returns, and we will truly be of one mind, one in, in every way. Well, today, we're looking at when division becomes necessary. And we must be prepared for the fact that external divisions must and will occur. The peace and the unity that we are called to is not an external unity at all costs. Okay, and divisions will occur. That's what we're going to see today. So here's, here's the outline of where we're going. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11, mainly in 18 and 19. Uh, so you can, you can turn there now. I invite you to turn there now. And, and here's, here's the three points for today. The first is that division is to be avoided as long as it depends on us. Secondly, we'll see that some division is necessary. And thirdly, we'll see that necessary division serves the purpose of separating genuine Christians from the false. So it serves a, a clarifying purpose. So, uh, first, division is to be avoided as long as it depends on us. I'll invite you to read with me 1 Corinthians 11, 17, uh, starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, the Apostle Paul writes, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Our main emphasis is going to be, like I said, in verses 18 and 19, where Paul mentions this necessity of factions. Um, but the context is a very important, as it typically is. Uh, it's very important to our understanding here. The context in which Paul is going to say that factions are necessary is actually one in which he is rebuking them for divisions. He's calling them to repent of these divisions. He's rebuking them for, for this. He says there, in verse 18, I, I hear 
that there are divisions among you. This word for division is the word that we get schism from. You've heard that word, I'm sure. The specific issue in view is that they are abusing the Lord's Supper. They have made it into a feast. Well, that, that's not the abuse. That's not the bad part that they're eating uh, a meal around. That's not, that's not the problem. But in this feast, some in the church are wealthy. They have lots. They gather. They're not waiting for each other. They just go ahead with their meal. And, and those that are wealthy and have lots are stuffed. They are even getting drunk, he says, while others who don't have, the poorer among them, go hungry. So there, it's basically, it's chaotic. It's like if we all, when we join for our meal after, whoever's got more money brings their food and they're off eating in their corner and they don't wait for everybody. And, we, and, we're, and then the, some of us don't have any food to eat really or very little and we're hungry. And, and there's, there's nothing united about this. This isn't displaying the unity of the body of Christ in any way. And yet they're calling this the Lord's Supper. And so this is the issue that he's rebuking them for. And he does that in the following verses. So there's a division here that he's rebuking. And earlier in the book, uh, we see that there were also divisions or schism, same word, around different leaders they were following. You remember that from chapter 1. Some were of Paul, some were of Apollos. You, you recall this, you know this. And Paul appeals to them there in chapter 1, verse 10, that there be no divisions among you. Okay, so he's calling for them not to be divided. Again in chapter 1, then we see it here in chapter 11. Then in chapter 12, verse 25, he again expresses his desire that there be no divisions, no schisms in the body. Which is, interestingly, in chapter 12, it's tied to how uh, exercising our gifts helps prevent divisions. Uh, that's what he's talking about in chapter 12, which is very much what we talked about last week as well. As we exercise our gifts, uh, you know, serving one another in the body, building each other up, that's one of the ways where we're working against divisions and we're promoting unity. So, throughout the book, we have Paul saying, let there be no divisions. He's calling them to not be divided. And we know there were various divisions threatening the church. And Paul corrects them on it. So, we see that division is to be avoided as long as it depends on us. So, just because he's, he's going to say that factions must come, which we'll look at in a moment, this is not something that... Um, you know, we, we should try for in some excited way, obviously, as though this is like a great thing. Yay. It's, it's almost like, it's almost comparable to how suffering's going to come. We don't like get excited that suffering is going to come, but we, we, we know it is going to come, right? So divisions we know will come, but this is not an excuse to be divisive in any way. Rather, as Romans twelve eighteen says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Right? We are called to be peacemakers. We are not called to be troublemakers. We're not called to just simply fight all the time. We're not to, to go out everywhere seeking out the wolves necessarily. But when they come near, we deal with them. When it's necessary to make distinctions, we do. 
But again, I just want to be clear up front, this doesn't mean we're talking about some morbid uh, obsession with fighting or with divisions because they're necessary. That's not what we're called to. We're called as far as it depends on us to not be divisive. We're not to be pugnacious. We're not advocating an obsession for fighting. So just you know, at the, at the beginning of a sermon on the necessity of division, I just want to make that clear and also for us to see that this is not an inconsistency. It's not inconsistent to say that unity is important, that we're striving for unity, to not be divisive, and at the same time recognize that there are times when division is necessary. It's not, an, it's not an inconsistency. It's right here in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. In the context of a call to not be divisive is this statement talking about times when it is actually necessary. So breaks in fellowship are not the ideal. In a sense, they're, they're almost a last resort in, in one sense. So we as a church, we need to be ready we need to be prepared to battle where necessary. But at the same time, guard against unnecessary divisions and squabbles. There's a difference here. So division is to be avoided as long as it depends on us. Number two, some division is necessary. So after saying that Paul has heard a report of division among them, he says at the end of 18... I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you. There must be factions. The verb used here speaks of necessity. There must be. It's often translated as, it is necessary. Something is necessary. And oftentimes, God's design, God's plan, is the implied and in some cases explicit reason why a thing is necessary. So Revelation 22.6, just for example, is just one example, where the angel tells John, right at the end of the Bible, the end of Revelation, that the things he's been shown in Revelation, the angel says, must soon take place. Same verb. It must take place. It's necessary for these things to take place. Why? Why is this necessary that they take place? Well, because God says so. Because God has determined. God has said, this is the way things are going to work out. Revelation, in part, is prophetic, right? And so, it must take place. It must soon happen. Why? Because God has determined it to be so. He's behind that. So, too, factions, we're told, must take place. Because God has ordained and decided it to be this way. It is part of New Testament church life. We'll get into uh, more of why they're necessary in just uh, a moment. Um, but first, just a, a, I just want to say a few things about this word factions um, to see what it is that Paul's saying is necessary. So as, we, as, I, as I mentioned, uh, the word for division is the Greek word schisma, from which we get the word schism. Uh, so this is the idea of, of dividing, of breaking union. And the word for factions here is the Greek word heresis, from which we get the word heresy. The word essentially meant 
faction, as it's translated here. And in the Bible, it's used in, some, in different ways, this word. So at times it's used in a neutral way to speak of people who hold certain beliefs. So it's sometimes translated as party or sect. So, uh, for example, um, Acts 5.17 references the party of the Sadducees. It's not really making a case there that this is heresy as we might think of it. It's just saying this is a group that believes a certain set of things within Judaism. It's a, the party of the Sadducees. It's sometimes how it's used in kind of a, a neutral way, neither saying this is a good thing or bad. Um, in, in the early church, we know that the word became, you know, came predominantly to refer to doctrinal error that would uh, threaten the church, corrupt the church, false doctrine. And that's, that's how we commonly think of this word heresy, right? That's what it really means today. That's how we think of it. Um, but, but faction, this idea of faction is at the root of that word and, and still is in many ways. It's the idea that factions are, arose around false teachers. And, and we see this usage in the Bible as well. So particularly, 2 Peter 2, 21 where we're warned, Peter warns of false prophets, he says, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Yeah, we're destructive, obviously helps us understand uh, this is a negative use, right? It's a negative teaching they're bringing in that's going to lead to factions. And there's a warning of it in 2 Peter 2, 1. In Acts 24, 5, it's used in a similar negative way. Paul is accused there of being the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Very clearly, you know, the Jewish leaders believe this sect of the Nazarenes, the Christians, followers of the way, were heretical. They believed it was blasphemy. They crucified Christ, accused him of blasphemy. This man is the ringleader of this, this sect. Okay, so it's, again, it's used... As this, this, they view this group as this faction that's split off as a result of this false doctrine and false teaching. That's their understanding of it, of Christians. And so I think this is what Paul has in mind here in 1 Corinthians, that factions based on false teachings are necessary. They must come. And this is actually, it sounds strange, but this is fitting with the rest of the New Testament. So in, in Acts 20, Paul warned the Ephesian elders. He gathers the Ephesian elders together, and he warned them that fierce wolves would come in among them, not sparing the flock. And he, he warns these elders about this. Why was he confident about this? How did he know that that would happen? Because he knew it was necessary for this to occur. False teachers would come. These factions would occur. In 2 Peter 2.1, which I just mentioned, Peter warned his readers of the same thing. He says, false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. There will be false teachers bringing in heresy. They're, they're, they're sure of it. They're certain of it. I would say this is because the Lord Jesus taught them this. The Lord Jesus himself tells us this. In places like Matthew 7, 15, Matthew 24, uh, verse 11, verse 24, Jesus tells us explicitly false teachers, false Christs will arise and will come into 
the church, to lead people astray. So we know that's going to come. And this is why Paul can say, this is necessary. It's coming. It's going to happen. So what he's saying here, in, in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 11, what Paul's saying is that he's heard a report of division among them, and he is certainly is persuaded to believe it, in part, if for no other reason than the fact that heresies, factions, must come. If these things must come, Jesus told us, they will come, then obviously, he's saying, there will be division of some kind. If we know that false teachers are coming to stir up trouble in the church and to lead astray any who will listen to them, then of course, division is coming. It's not totally surprising. False teaching is coming. And some who identify outwardly with the church will be led astray into such factions. And so, division is going to be necessary. It's going to be unavoidable. And we need to be prepared for this. And this is a sober reminder, I think. And, and even this, this claim that it's going to happen, it's necessary, it's, it's unavoidable... It's in keeping with what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks as we've looked at Christian unity. If unity is built upon the foundation of our one faith and the one gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and this involves certain doctrines, the fact that Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth, who died on the cross in substitution for sinners to pay the, their penalty on the cross for their sin, who's the sins of, of men and women being imputed to Christ, and He pays their penalty while His righteousness is accredited to sinners by grace through faith. If this is the basis of unity, then if someone teaches something that isn't in keeping with the faith once for all delivered to the saints, if they teach something contrary to this, then outward division is going to be necessary. It's going to have to happen. We long to live a conflict-free life, I think most of us. For most of us, that's very true. Many of us build our lives around this, seeking to avoid trouble, seeking to avoid conflict in any, in any way possible. But as Christians, we are promised conflict in various ways. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that we're actually in conflict with the very forces of evil themselves. The spiritual forces of evil themselves. And one way this conflict is manifested is in false teachers coming into the church and attempting to teach false doctrines and cause disruption and draw people away. This is one of the ways this, this war, this conflict is, is manifested. Factions are unavoidable. They will come. And this is a call for us to be discerning. It's a call for us to be courageous. We don't want to make mountains out of molehills, but we must be willing to die 
on those which truly are the mountains of our faith. The core doctrines and truths of Christianity are one faith, one Lord, one baptism. The things we looked at last week from Ephesians 4. We must be willing to divide over these issues. Getting along with others at any cost is not biblical. Paul says factions must come. It's necessary. And with that, external divisions are inevitable. Some division is necessary. Thirdly, necessary division serves the purpose of separating genuine Christians from false brothers, from false believers. Read verse 19 with me again. For there must be factions among you in order that, this is the purpose, those who are genuine among you might be recognized. The thought of division, the concept of division, it's not entirely encouraging. You don't like the thought of that. It's not a real encouraging thought. But Paul here gives a positive reason for why this happens. A positive reason for factious divisions. That the genuine believers might be made known, might be made visible, evident. The designs of the false teachers and the demonic forces guiding them underneath what they're teaching, are ultimately overturned by God, who uses these things to clarify true believers from false, truth from error. To make a distinction between truth and error. The word genuine here can mean approved or tried and true. Uh, it's used in a, no a number of times in the Bible to talk of a genuine true believer as distinguished from a false brother or sister. Romans 16.10, Paul says, Greet Apelles, who is approved, or genuine, in Christ. That is, this brother to be greeted as a genuine, approved, true brother. He stood test, he's genuine. If we look back on the history of Christianity, the history of the church, we see that many of the great heresies have actually uh, served to bring great clarification to our doctrine. Uh, and in fact, about a year ago, uh, Harley was preaching through 1 Corinthians, and made, he made the same point in, in this passage as well, um, that, that many of the false teachings and, and heresies in the past have helped actually serve to, to, for the church to be able to to clarify what it is that the Bible says and, and even put these things down in writing and, and pass these things on. So, for example, the Council of Nicaea, most of us have heard of this, responded to these teachings of a man named Arius and his followers who were denying the deity of Christ. This led men like Athanasius to do the hard work and the hard thinking of digging into Scripture to see... Uh, more about the person of Christ. What does the Bible say? How does this work if he's man and yet also God? And how can we think through this without being inconsistent or being just this being nonsense? Um, it, it, it served, it, it provided an opportunity, this false teaching, to bring clarity. And out of this and, and future discussions as well, great clarity has come upon the, the person of Jesus Christ and who he is and 
and, and the doctrine of the Trinity even as well. And so even as we, we look at these, these, these heresies, these factions that arose, uh, it can serve a, a clarifying purpose, which is what Paul is saying here. In 1 John 2.19, John says a similar thing. He says that the false teachers went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So the division that John is referencing, these people that went out from us, clarify who was genuine and who was not. It made things plain. These people taught false doctrine. They've left us. There's been a split and a divide, and it served to make it plain. And now we know who the genuine believers are. They are those who stick to the apostles' teaching. They were the ones that John was, was writing to. So it's, it's clarifying. I would say the Reformation falls into this category as well. It made, it made clear who was attempting to adhere to Scripture and who was not. You know, if you were here a couple weeks ago when we started this series, we started with an example of, of the Reformation and how the Reformers were, were uh, maligned and were charged with division. They were charged with schism. They were charged with heresy, being factious, being, splitting the church. And their response was continually, we're returning to what the Scripture said. What we're saying is in line with what the early church taught and believed. That, that was their defense. We're not the ones being divisive. We are looking to Scripture here. And so, indeed, there was a significant split, there was a divide, an external divide, but it was a gloriously clarifying moment. It was a necessary division because the false doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, they would not repent of it, they would not turn from it. They refused to do so. And so there had to be, something had to give, there was a necessary division that brought about clarity. In, chap in chapter 11 here of 1 Corinthians, Paul does seem, as I've said, to have the idea of division uh, that arises out of false doctrine. Uh, that seems to be what he has in view here. But he also speaks of external division that the church is to make from unrepentant sinners who profess to be believers, that is. And so I want to just put a bracket here on what we're talking about in chapter 11 Turn back with me to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians for a moment. Chapter 5, verse 9. And I just want to read a paragraph here. Paul wrote to them earlier. He says, I wrote to you in, a, in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. So he's saying here, yes, I told you not to associate with the, the sexually immoral people. And, and he's talking about those who are unrepentant about it. That's clear from the context and from the rest of Scripture. Those who are unrepentant about it. He's saying, I told you not to associate with them. I'm not talking about the, the unbelievers, the people of the world. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to associate with anybody out there. If you're going to talk to them about the gospel and have conversations with them, you know, you're going to have to have some association with them. Rather, he's saying, 
As we'll see in verse 11, he says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, they claim to be a Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater or reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So this act that the church is called to, this church discipline, when a person claims to be a Christian but is in unrepentant sin and refuses to turn from it, and they're to set him outside, purge the evil person from among you, pass a judgment, Paul says explicitly, uh, this is an outward division of sorts. And it too results in clarifying who is a genuine believer and who is not. Church discipline is necessary division as well. And I just wanted to add that there, uh, here, because though it's not directly in view in chapter 11, uh, it, it, it has already in 1 Corinthians been covered in chapter 5. And it's important, just as we think about this idea of unity and where you know, division is, is necessary, that, that is very clearly one of those places where an external uh, divide and setting someone outside is, is necessary and is biblical. So, so back to chapter 11, back to chapter 11, notice, if these factions serve to reveal genuine believers and distinguish them from unbelievers, or false brothers, then what we can say is that such a division, such a split, is not an actual split in the body of Christ. It's an outward purifying of the body of Christ, but it's not a split in the actual body of Christ. So if you'll remember what we've covered in previous weeks, the body of Christ is made up of everyone who is actually born again. Those who come out of the, the world in the sense of having turned from their sin, they've trusted in Jesus Christ, they've actually been converted, the Lord has miraculously changed their heart, made them desire His righteousness and desire His word and, 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 and hate their sinfulness. All for whom that applies are part of the body of Christ, the spiritual body of Christ. And so, when there is this outward division, when someone proves themselves to believe false doctrine, they're showing themselves to actually not be part of the body. And the, the true body of Christ is not actually split. So, for example, I used this example a couple weeks ago, Acts 8, Simon the Magician. He's a, a guy who professed faith in Christ, he renounced some of his arts, and he, uh, he, he got baptized, he fooled Philip, who was not, you know, who, who was sharp. He even fooled Peter when Peter uh, joined them, and uh, for a time, and then eventually Peter outed himself when he offered money to them in order that he might be able to control the Holy Spirit and, and give the Holy Spirit to people by, you know, he wanted, he wanted that power, so he was offering to pay money. And Peter sees what's going on here and calls him out, rebukes him. And, and he says, your heart is not right with God. You have neither part nor lot in the matter. He says he's actually in the, the bond of, of bitterness, wickedness. So it's possible to have an external 
outward division, an organization, a, a division, a separation of people that isn't actually splitting the body of Christ. So let me try to explain this a little more. Uh, Cyprian was a third century uh, bishop, early church father. He described it like this. Uh, he, he was martyred in the mid-third century. He says this, Pluck a ray from the body of the sun, and the unity sustains no division. Break a branch from a tree, and the branch will not germinate. Cut off a stream from a fountain, that which is cut off dries up. So the church, pervaded by the light of the Lord, extends over the whole globe, and yet the light, which is everywhere diffused, is one. So in other words, such divisions don't actually destroy the body of Christ. Right? You can lop off a branch of a tree, that branch will die, but the tree remains strong, it remains united. He uses the example of a, a stream. If one stream is cut off from the source, the source continues to flow, even though that stream will dry up. And so even as these divisions, these necessary divisions, I will say, take place, it's not actually a division in the body of Christ. It serves to show us genuine believers and genuine truth and make a, a, a proper distinction. This is the positive side of it positive reason for it, Paul gives us. In 1963, Billy Graham was wanting Martin Lloyd-Jones to be chairman of the World Council on Evangelism, which was a broadly evangelical council. Graham visited Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel in London, and Lloyd-Jones reports their conversation in the following way. He says, I said I'd make a bargain. If he, Graham, would stop the general sponsorship of his campaigns, stop having liberals and Roman Catholics on the platform, and drop the invitation system, I would wholeheartedly support him and chair the Congress. We talked for about three hours, but he didn't accept these conditions. What Lloyd-Jones could see, that there was no essential unity here with liberals and, and Roman Catholics, because they believed very different things on essential doctrine, including fundamental things like what is a Christian. If we have opposite, conflicting definitions of that, we're not united. And it's problematic to give the impression to the contrary, which is what Lloyd-Jones saw happening. And so Lloyd-Jones was having a conversation. He was not, you know, condemning Graham to hell but he was declaring his practice to be unbiblical. It was compromise. That's how he saw it. To get together with liberals and with Roman Catholics for evangelism was to confuse. It was not to bring clarity, but to confuse. The evangelicals were missing a chance to make a clear distinction by not separating from them, and instead... It was the opposite of what Paul describes here. They were muddling things and bringing in confusion. There's an application for us uh, as a church here in Weyburn from this. There is, there is an association called the Weyburn Ministerial. It's really for any Christian who basically, or Christian leader in the community 
who has the Bible as their main book of faith and who hold that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. These two doctrinal requirements are not nearly enough to support unity, Christian unity, as we've seen over these three weeks. And yet, unity is one of the goals of this group. And they work toward unity by praying together and by working together on some community projects, not by discussing doctrine. As a church, we've always been at arm's length with this group because their desire for this external unity ahead of doctrinal unity, ahead of truth, is backwards. And so we, we've never seen ourselves as united with everyone that's part of this group. And this has even been previously um, stated in, in, in these meetings. It's not, it's not a secret. But this group welcomes anyone who can meet these two requirements. So at the table, there are Roman Catholics, the United Church is there, and I think basically every church in this town is represented there, and, and we are invited to be there. We can be there as well. Recent attempts have been made to uh, address this, to try to explain why this practice of unity is unbiblical and backwards. However, it's become apparent and clear that they don't want to have that conversation. In fact, the consensus is that these things we've discussed over the past three weeks, this position that I'm sharing with you that I think is biblical, is negative, and these ideas are divisive ideas. It's considered, these things are considered harmful to the progress of unity that has been made so far. And so we're not allowed to discuss this at, at a meeting, though we aren't forced to leave. And so we're withdrawing completely from the group. And this isn't to say that every person there is necessarily an unbeliever, but we are saying that what is being pursued there is not biblical Christian unity. It's compromise. If we answer the question, what is a Christian or what is the gospel, in diametrically opposed ways that cannot be reconciled, which some of us do in that group, then we do not have Christian unity. And I think anyone who understands logic can see that this is true. If I say it's red and you say it's blue, we are not united in any meaningful sense. Unless we're simply united in error. And so the elders of Gospel of Grace feel that to continue, you know, to be a member, even at kind of arm's length, to be a member of this group is to be compromised. And for the sake of clarity, we are officially removing ourselves. External organizational unity cannot come ahead of core doctrinal truths. I hope you, and I'm, I'm sure none of, nobody's surprised by any of this here. 
Although we, we can't talk about it at a meeting there, uh, the ministerial is willing to have us send a letter to explain ourselves and state our case. And so this is in, in process. And, and, and so, so, so this is all happening in the background as we're talking about this, you know, this, this topic. And it's one of the reasons we wanted to bring this up. Um, and part of it is just to be honest with you up front. Um, the, the fact is, to withdraw, we appear to be the backwards one, ones, right? We appear curmudgeonly. We just appear standoffish. We don't, we're really picky or whatever it might be. But friends, what do the scriptures say? And we're seeing what the scriptures say. There is no real meaningful unity there. And we want, you, we want us to be united on our understanding of this and, and to stand firm in the truths of the gospel, and to not compromise this for external unity or what other benefits, whatever other benefits might come from being part of such a group. It's not divisive to want to practice biblical Christian unity, and it's a shame that it is considered to be so, to, that we can't even have the discussion. And so we must stand our ground on the truth of the gospel, on the truth of the word, and trust that God himself can give us a voice in the community if he desires. We don't need to compromise in order to be able to write in the newspaper once in a while because we're part of this organization. We can find other ways to get the gospel out. And so we do, we, we need to also, I think, be careful not to think too highly of ourselves through this. Um, we, we should be doing this mournfully. I mean, what a, sad, what a sad state of affairs it is. That this is. That this is our situation. We can't have this conversation. It's, it's a sad indictment of what the situation of the church in our, in our town is. And so we do this in mourning. And yet, even as we mourn this reality, we rejoice that there is an opportunity here to bring clarity to the gospel. And, and it would be good and right for us to pray that others would, would see this truth as well and come out. And that the truth of the gospel would be upheld and would be central to the churches of Weyburn. I began with a quote from a gentleman who knew Billy Graham and about Graham's desire to, to mediate between conservatives and liberals. And I want to finish the quote. It comes from a book, Evangelicalism Divided, by Ian Murray. I want to finish the quote. I'll read the part I already, I already read earlier and, and then the rest of it. Those who know Billy best say that it is his amiable personality that makes him believe that he can become a sort of pontiff or bridge builder between Bible-believing Christians and those attractive personalities who are the proponents of the non-redemptive gospel. At a recent breakfast, he pleaded with us to recognize that many of the liberals were good men, loved the Lord, and perhaps could be won over to the conservative position. Then he says this, Billy spreads himself too thin. He tries not to offend anybody in any way. Not making war on some things, 
He has gone to the other extreme and made peace. Not with the doctrines of apostasy, but with those who preach the doctrines of apostasy. This, I believe, is deadly and will one day defeat the whole cause for which this man of God is laboring. Graham's desire, and the other evangelicals with him, was, was to make peace with those men who espoused heresy and in order to influence them. But however nobles want, noble those intentions might be, such peace is not biblical. In fact, such situations and division in those cases is necessary, Paul says. It's going to happen. It must happen. The desire was always for Graham and these others to influence the liberals. He believed he could win some of them over to the conservative position, that is, to true belief in the gospel. And yet, as later years, later interviews from Graham made clear, the influence went the other direction. In an interview with the late Robert Schuller, who was the minister of the uh, Crystal Cathedral, he taught a liberal self-esteem gospel. Graham affirmed the following. Whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the non-believing world, they are members of the body of Christ because they have been called by God. They may not know the name of Jesus, but they know in their hearts that they need something they do not have. And they turn to the only light they have. And I think they are saved and are going to be with us in heaven. Surprised by this, Ian Murray writes, Schuler was anxious for clarification. This is what Schuler said. What I hear you saying, that it's, it's possible for Jesus Christ to come into human hearts and soul and life, even if you have been born in darkness and have never had exposure to the Bible or to the gospel. Is that a correct interpretation of what you are saying? And he responded, Graham responded, yes, it is. Very forthrightly, very plainly. After that interview, some in, in Graham's camp you know, tried to clarify he was not well when he gave that interview. He was sick, and, and that's why this came out. But, but the problem is he's in writing earlier saying it. He's repeated it since then as well. That, that What he's espousing there is inclusivism, that people can be saved outside of hearing the gospel, outside of, uh, of, of the, the scriptures, the scriptural gospel, uh, just by you know, following whatever light they have is what he says. And that's, that's, that's false. Now my point in bringing this up is not to simply rail against Graham. It's not to say he's the worst person in the world. It's not to say that nobody ever got saved under his preaching. I'm not, I'm not saying that. My point is this. There is a division that is necessary. And men like Graham missed this. And men today continue to miss this. And this mess of evangelicalism we see is partly the result of this. We are reaping the benefits in our own ministerial, in our own town, of these kinds of errors. Of, of refusing to separate when it's a must. When the core of the gospel is at stake. This is a big reason we're in this mess. And we need to be honest about this. We must follow the scriptures teaching on this. Peace cannot come at the expense of the gospel. 
When the Bible warns us of false teachers, we're not to coddle up to them. They come in, they claim to be Christians, they teach a false gospel. We do not cuddle up to them. Just as you don't cuddle up to a wolf. You don't send sheep out to, to snuggle up to wolves. It's absurd. And this is, as the tragic case of Graham shows us, and the evangelical world all around us, this compromise leads to further compromise. And the influence runs the other direction. As Paul says, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And we should not and must not try to improve on what the Bible says. Paul says factions will come. Jesus says beware of false teachers. But, you know, I don't think so. I think we should join with them in an organization and claim to be united so that people might think that Jesus really came from the Father. That's not what John 17 says. That's not what the Bible teaches. That is to cuddle up to wolves, and it's the death of the church. It's to put people in harm's way. We don't throw people to the wolves. We must not try to improve on what the scriptures say. We must be prepared to stand, even if we stand there alone, together. The Lord Jesus Christ is worth it. And the fact is, just because some people think we might be negative, we're not thereby separated from the body of Christ. Our union with Christ is not therefore undone because certain people think we are divisive or think we might be negative. We stand in union with all those throughout the world who've gone before us and who are in the world now who actually have been converted and have been united to Christ. We stand with them even if right here we feel alone. And so we must not lose heart. We must stand for the truth of the gospel. And stand firmly, boldly, strongly, and courageously. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we are weak. And we we desperately, desperately need your help. Lord, we don't enjoy division we we want just nothing but happiness and yet you've told us it's coming you've told us there will be false teachers there will be wolves i pray that you'd help us to be diligent and discerning in this lord i pray that you would bring out your people in this city to stand for the truth that we'd be done with compromise, and that people, your people, whatever church they are currently in, that you'd draw them out, that they would want to stand on your word and stand for the truth of the gospel, that you'd raise up ministers in this town, preachers of the gospel, who would stand for the truth. God, I pray that we would not be dismayed by any accusations of negativity, 
that, but that we would long to stand for truth and to know that we are doing so with men and women of the past who are believers, who have stood and who've paid even in some cases the ultimate sacrifice to stand for the truth of the gospel. And I pray that we would be courageous in this. And Lord, I just pray that we would also, Lord, that you would grant us a humility in this and that we would mourn the state of affairs in our community and that we would pray, that we would take to our knees to pray, to pray for salvation. I pray that we would, that, that you would just show yourself mighty to save. We, your people, are weak. We need your help. We look to you. You're our only hope of righteousness, our only hope of salvation. And we pray that you would shine your light greatly in this community and that you would indeed expose the genuine from the false, that you would indeed bring clarity to the truth, to your word, to the gospel in this city, in this town. We ask you to do this in the name of Jesus. Amen.